Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 2022 and Season 2 of High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. I wish you all a happy, healthy new year. And that's what really counts in life. Happiness health, and being the best you in 2022. This is the season's premiere, and instead of the typical questions and experts, you're going to hear my monologue as I reflect on the top 10 successes of the past year, failures of 2021, and hopes for the future. I'll be sharing a lot of ideas. My brain's always full of evaluations and problem-solving And my hope for you is to take at least one single idea and concept and share it with your family, friends, or community. So let me start by asking you a question. Who is jealous of diarrhea? You heard me correctly, diarrhea, the runny brown stuff that makes kids giggle, but can be life-threatening in certain circumstances. Who's jealous of diarrhea? Me. Yes, I'm jealous of diarrhea especially Shigella, a bacteria that causes watery brown and bloody stools. Keep listening and I'll tell you why. Today, you'll hear just from me, but don't worry, I have an A-plus lineup of guests that you will hear from throughout the year. And I feel very fortunate to host a conversation with Dr. Nora Volkoff, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and Admiral Rachel Levine, the United States Assistant Secretary of Health, We will talk about fentanyl, methamphetamine, marijuana, as well as crime cartels, prevention, treatment, and recovery. I am sure you will enjoy and be inspired by my High Truths guests. A year ago, I set a goal to host a podcast. I didn't know much about producing a show or the art of interviewing. I was nervous because I'm not a professional podcaster or radio personality. I'm just a doctor, but I'm a doctor with a mission. Since eighth grade, I wanted to be a doctor that helps people and cures them from illness. It was not an easy road for me, but I did it. And then I became an emergency physician to be a hero and save people from trauma and life-threatening infections or illnesses and heart attacks and strokes. Imagine my shock when I worked with the medical examiner to learn why people were dying of medications 
medications that I could have been prescribing. The medical examiner is the antithesis of an emergency physician. His patients were my failures. I painfully reviewed every person the medical examiner certified who died from a medication and compared the drugs found on autopsy to drugs prescribed before they died. The prescriptions I found of people who died could have been my prescriptions. I was mortified to find out that one of my prescription was found in a woman who died. The study changed my life as a doctor. Page after page after page of prescription history told a story of how that person died. And that's why I called that research project, The Death Diaries. So you may be curious about my own death diary prescription. I was working on phase two of this research in 2015, where we sent educational non-accusatory letters to physicians who had patients who died from a prescription that they wrote. I was told of one doctor who had 10 deaths and we were deciding whether to include him in the statistics or if it was an outlier. How could one doctor have 10 deaths? It was a red flag. So I drove down to the medical examiner's office where the data was housed and scrolled the massive files of 800 names. And then I stopped cold. Lev Ronit, me, oh my God, how could that be? I was so careful. I checked the prescription drug monitoring system. I'm the queen of the PDMP. And yet there it was, Lev Ronit, hydrocodone, five over 325, number 15 tablets, and now a 31-year-old woman was dead. I wrote her name down, her birthday, and researched my treatment record. I will call her Megan. Megan was assaulted by her brother, had a complex laceration to her face, and broke her eye socket. I called the plastic surgeon to repair it, and her medical history included lupus, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, anxiety, and reflux disease, all in a young 31-year-old. Our angel plastic surgeon came to the hospital, fixed her up, and asked me to write some pain medications. So I expedited his request without really checking. I had no idea that two days before she received my prescription, she received 120 oxycodone tablets. Three months later, she returned to the emergency department with body aches. Two months after that, she saw her doctor and received 30 morphine pills. Four months after that, she had abdominal pain and had her gallbladder out. After surgery, she was discharged with Xanax, morphine, and oxycodone. Then she was dead five months later. It was 15 months after my prescription. So clearly my 15 hydrocodone is not what killed her, but they didn't help her. And although she had medical conditions that warranted pain medications, the risk benefit of her dosing in combination with anxiety medicines was clearly deadly. I don't blame myself for her death, but I do vow to do better for myself and for my profession. When you see something, you say something. So when I see a prescription that looks like someone from the death diaries, I say something, I do something. The death diaries unleashed my passion for decreasing preventable deaths from drugs, whether they were prescribed or illicit. I wanna use the High Truths on Drugs and Addiction podcast to learn from experts, to educate, and to move an agenda that saves lives. Overdoses can be prevented, substance use disorders can be treated, and prevention is a vaccine for addiction. 
High Truths is more than a podcast. It's a venue for action. And now let me share with you 10 of my successes for the year. 2021 was action-packed for me, and I have a whole bunch of stories to share with you, so indulge me as I share the top 10. Uh, And then I'll share with you some of the hopes and failures. The number one success to start out with is this podcast. It was one of my big projects for 2021. I like talking and sharing my many ideas and philosophies. And while working for the White House, I didn't have the freedom to speak publicly about anything I wanted to. What I said had to reflect the approval and mission of the administration. That makes sense. The leadership of any organization should carry a united message. The joke I share with my friends is, how do you shut someone up who has lots of opinions, a lot of things to say? Simple, give them a job in federal government. So this podcast was born out of 18 months of suppressed talking. Now my mouth is going at it. This year, High Truths allowed me memorable and meaningful conversations with amazing people from across America, from federal officials to scientists, doctors, authors, movie producers, and regular citizens. I enjoy learning and listening to all my insightful guests, and I hope you have too. When I left DC, I realized I can work from the outside to influence policy and to be able to talk as loud and as much as I wanted, and hence the podcast. Now I get to share my opinions with thousands of LinkedIn connections and podcast downloads. I have fun talking to various organizations at conferences and serve on panel discussions with the National Academy of Medicines, the FDA, and NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. The pandemic-driven virtual platform without travel made it much easier for me to reach people. The second success I wanna share with you is about naloxone. High Truths created an avenue for me to do projects that I couldn't complete while at ONDCP. What I couldn't do as a federal employee, now I could do as a private citizen. For example, I thought naloxone should be over the counter without a prescription. Some areas of the United States provide standing orders to groups to purchase naloxone, but that doesn't help everyone who needs one. My solution was for the Surgeon General to provide a free prescription of naloxone to anyone who wanted one until the FDA approved a generic version. A great idea, right? Well, that didn't happen. And so I decided to take this good idea to High Truths. And I'm proud to offer a free prescription of naloxone on my High Truths website. Number three, success. Ending the opioid prescription epidemic. At the beginning of 2021, I declared that the prescription opioid epidemic was over. That was the issue that drove me to serve at the White House. Um, I felt like that is something I could play a role in. It's important to separate the medical versus illicit supply chain of overdoses. I knew that targeting the medical supply chain of opioids would end the opioid prescription epidemic and mission accomplished. We are now at record low opioid prescription. We no longer have an opioid prescription epidemic. The lesson is that while opiate use disorder treatment is important, prevention was the key to ending that problem. We now have a worse problem, unfortunately, the fentanyl epidemic. The good news is that the medical community is engaged. We're engaged in both the treatment of addiction and prevention, but we have to do better in decreasing the medical supply chain of deaths. In 1990, we were at two deaths per 100,000 in unintentional medication overdoses. In 2011, we peaked at 5.7 deaths per 100,000. And now 
we're better, but not yet at baseline. To decrease deaths from medication supply chain, we need to move the conversation to safe prescribing of all drugs that depress the central nervous system. Pain medications, anxiety medications, sleeping pills, stimulants, alcohol, cannabis products, they're all additive in nature and all need to be coordinated with medical oversight. Number four in successes for 2021 is innovations in safe prescribing. I'm really proud of a project that I participated in called Innovations of Safe Prescribing. It was led by Champions of Health, the San Diego Medical Society Foundation, and funded by the San Diego Public Health Department. In this medical education project, we addressed not just opioids, but all medications that resulted in unintentional deaths. We discussed eliminating stigma through clinical understanding, opioids and benzodiazepine stewardship, drug tapering, FDA safety communications, and alternatives to opioids with better pain management, as well as the side effects of marijuana. I made an educational video on how to do a trigger point injection, and you can watch this video on the High Truths and Drugs and Addiction YouTube channel. Success number five, the X waiver. We had an emotional year when it comes to the X waiver, ups and downs. The X waiver is a federal registration on top of a DEA license to prescribe buprenorphine, a drug that treats opiate use disorder. In order to obtain such a waiver, you have to register with the government and take government mandated education. Physicians had to take an eight hour course while nurse practitioners and physician assistants were required to take a 24 hour course. That's hours of education to use one drug. The X waiver and education had a historical purpose, but in 2021 and rising deaths of opiate addiction, it was time to remove this barrier. COVID taught us that. We, the medical community, were learning on the fly how to treat this virus, and we learned. Can you imagine requiring eight and 24 hours of education before treating COVID? Ridiculous. That led to a campaign to X the X waiver. And I was happy to introduce this concept while at ONDCP and then push for it when I left the office. The emotional roller coaster was an initial triumph with the Trump administration of eliminating the education and registration requirement to prescribe buprenorphine. Yay, we X the X waiver. But then the celebration was short-lived as the Biden-Harris administration put back the X, sad emoji. The administration has cited that removing the barriers is a good idea, but it was done the wrong way. Eventually, the education requirement was removed for providers who treat 30 or less patients, but maintain the X waiver, the requirement to register with the government. Happy and sad emoji. I think the X waiver remains a barrier and perpetuates stigma. It's an excuse for doctors not to prescribe medications to treat opioid addiction. I'm sorry, Susie. You have to go to another doctor for that treatment. I'm not allowed to do it. Can you imagine going to your doctor and hearing, oh, I'm sorry, I can't treat your asthma and refill your inhaler. You need to go to a different doctor for that. Some really severe cases of asthma do need a specialist, but most can be treated in a primary care setting. And the same comes with addiction. Number six, government mandated education. I believe the government should minimize meddling in the doctor-patient relationship. People forgot, but the government mandated education on pain and opioids created the opioid epidemic. 
education mandates have good intentions, but have negative consequences. By the time they're implemented, the information is old. It is better to set goals without micromanagement. One of my proud achievements at ONDCP is not what I did, but what I was able to undo. One of the government mandated goals was to increase opioid education on the entire healthcare community. I was able to gather data and argue that the goal has been accomplished, that box can be checked. My daughters in medical school received lectures on opioid prescriptions, addictions, and substance use disorder a few times already during their training. While we need to continue educating in general, we should always be improving, but mandated forced courses is not the way to go. Number seven in successes, credo. Credo stands for Community Response to Drug Overdoses and is a name of a project I was involved with while at ONDCP. And we worked with the Department of Homeland Security, the National Security Council, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The goal was to create a national voluntary standard for drug overdoses, like we have for active shooter incidences. After the active shooter massacres in Las Vegas and Orlando, the government realized that there are many agencies that respond to these events without a unified approach from incident to incident. The active shooter standards change that. The same reasoning and mechanism can be applied to a unified approach to drug overdose clusters. The Credo project lost momentum with the pandemic and change of administration, but with permission, I took the project locally to San Diego. San Diego Credo is a task force I share that unites the three Ps, public health, public safety, and prevention. We meet each month and share data and cases from the medical examiner, the sheriff crime lab, EMS runs, and hospital cases. We learn real time what is happening in our community so we can intervene. The district attorney at one point told us about cases of a six-month-old and a 10-month-old baby that overdosed from fentanyl. These babies were treated with CPR and multiple doses of epinephrine. And we realized that the EMS and medical community did not realize that babies can overdose from fentanyl. Heck, I didn't know that babies overdose from fentanyl. So we provided education on rescuing A, B, C, D, D for drugs in pediatric patients. Any unresponsive baby would be assumed to have an opioid overdose and given naloxone. And the education worked. The next month at Credo, more pediatric overdoses were reported, but the babies received naloxone and were revived without CPR. Number eight, success, fentanyl testing. The Credo committee initiated a hospital fentanyl testing project. ONDCP oversees the National Drug-Free Workplace Program under SAMHSA. That is where I learned about drug testing. The Federal Five was established by the Drug-Free Workplace and set the national standard that any drug screen test must, must include at least five chemicals, opiates, cocaine, amphetamines, THC, actin component, marijuana, and PCP. I am advocating for the Federal Six. Given that fentanyl is the number one killer in America, why would we not be including it in a drug panel? A 14-year-old boy came to the hospital with a presumed fentanyl overdose. His toxicology test was negative for opiates in the emergency department, but an opiate test does not include fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opiate that does not show up on drug screens. 
many doctors and people don't know that. The child was in a coma for a few days in the ICU on a fentanyl drip, which is a common ICU medication. Illicit fentanyl and medicinal fentanyl cannot be distinguished on a drug screen. When the boy died, his parents did not receive the answers and the peace they wanted of why their child died. The Credo Committee was able to educate the Children's Hospital in obtaining fentanyl reagent and testing, and we were able to share that education with the community. We created a fentanyl toolkit on how to obtain fentanyl reagents, as well as a local campaign to encourage other hospitals to do the same. Within 10 months, we went from four hospitals that routinely test for fentanyl to 15 hospitals. It is now standard of care in San Diego County to include fentanyl in all urine drug screens at the hospital. I am super excited that this project idea was written as legislation and hopefully will be carried as a bill in 2022, the first of its kind in the United States, starting in uh, California and initiated by our Credo Committee to include legislation that anytime a urine drug screen is ordered at a hospital setting, it includes fentanyl. And I'm very proud of the team at FAF, Families Against Fentanyl, who are supporting this initiative and including fentanyl testing in hospital settings. Number nine in success is marijuana, uh, the M word. On the marijuana front, I'm proud of several projects. And a major one is establishment of Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Many of the international experts have been guests on High Truce. And I have great admiration to these professionals. And I'm so inspired by the conversation I share with them in this podcast. They are top professionals, researchers, and scientists in the field of cannabis and marijuana. My contribution to Isaac has been the medical library that I urge you to visit, isaac1.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org. And the website, there's a medical library, and it's my baby. If you find arrows or typos, it's because I typed it all. It's a masterpiece and a labor of love. I want anybody without a medical background to be able to understand the medical literature on marijuana. The library takes complex medical journal publications and translate them into simple points that anyone can understand and reference. The library has 30 different categories such as autism, cancer, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, cardiovascular health, contaminants, depression, domestic violence, drug interactions, emergency visits, and psychosis. And check out my masterpiece at isaac1.org. The other marijuana success project is about drug interactions. Joe Eberstein from the Marijuana Prevention Initiative and Sarah Salvin from CCR partnered with me on a marijuana info card. We distributed the info card to 17 pharmacies in San Diego to educate about drug interactions with cannabis products. We surveyed the recipients of the card to gauge their reaction. Marijuana is the M word in California. Were people offended to receive a marijuana info card? Did they want this information? We received positive feedback. People want to know not to use grapefruit juice with their blood thinner. And they also want to know not to take cannabis products with their blood thinner. I had a patient who was admitted to the hospital three times with internal bleeding. He was treated with blood transfusions and endoscopy. And finally, we figured out that his marijuana smoking habit was interacting with his blood thinners that he needed for his heart stents, but they were causing him bleeding. These drug interactions can be fatal. 
The other marijuana-related project that I'm counting as success is the death diary research with cannabis. My colleagues at the University of California in San Diego are helping me complete a study on THC found on medical examiner autopsies. And the study is funded and sponsored by the National Marijuana Initiative. We're finding increased total overdoses associated with THC positive screens. In San Diego and in Colorado, the number one drug found in young adults who completed suicide is marijuana, even more than alcohol. We really need more of this type of research. Number nine of success has to do with methamphetamines. Practicing medicine in California means encountering methamphetamine on a daily basis. How often? Well, we studied that. I worked on a project with the University of Maryland called EDDS, Emergency Department Drug Surveillance. We found that 76% of emergency departments' urine drug screens were positive for methamphetamine. We live at ground zero for meth, close to the border, and preying on the homeless community. My emergency department treats daily cases of methamphetamine-induced psychosis and intoxication. Methamphetamine damages the heart and is so prevalent in our community that if I treat a patient 50 years or younger who has heart failure, it's inevitable that it's due to methamphetamine. Crashing on meth is worse on the emergency department than crashing on alcohol or opioids. And that's because coming down from meth can take three days, way more time than any other drug. And staying on a gurney in the emergency department that long takes away from other people who need to come in for our services. People think that there's no treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, but that's not true. Although there's not a medicine to treat it, there is treatment. The FDA does not have any approved medication, but the treatment that's available is called contingency management. It's a reward system geared at specific behaviors you want to reproduce, such as a negative urine drug screen for methamphetamine. The Veterans Administration has tested this model and reported up to a 90% success rate. The challenge is approving contingency management at a state and federal barrier. The methodology can be illegal in some places because of anti-kickback laws. But there's a movement to fix that, and we really desperately need it on the West Coast. One of the accomplishments I had at ONDCP was allowing any grant funds aimed at opiates to also be used for methamphetamines. And number 10 for successes of 2021 is not related to drugs, but I wanted to include it. It's about IEPC, Independent Emergency Physician Consortium. Many emergency physicians are employed by large corporations that have contracts with hospitals to provide care. IEPC emergency physicians are unique in their, that they are small businesses who directly contract with the hospital without the middleman corporation. I am one of the founders and now executive director for IEPC. I'm very proud of our emergency physicians, the warriors and heroes on the front lines of healthcare. They deal with all emergencies, as well as drugs, and are also learning from high truths. All right, with all the rattling on that I just did, you would think 2021 was a great year. But wait, time out. If you're still listening, please, please stop. Give me five stars and message me so I could thank you personally for listening to me for this long. 
I always think that's only my mother, who's my greatest fan, who listens. But if you're also listening to this point, let me know and make my day. All right. With the accomplishments of 2021, uh, it's actually been the worst year ever for our country in terms of drugs. In the big picture, the year was a deadly disaster. We have more drugs pouring into our country, more than 100,000 dead in the past 12 months. That's an airplane a day falling out of the sky full of people who overdosed on drugs. More people under the age of 45 died of fentanyl than died of COVID. This is a failure. There should be an outcry. The problems with drugs is a whack-a-mole analogy. We whacked the opioid prescription mole only to get a bigger, fatter fentanyl mole. And each mole needs a stronger weapon in order to get it. But as we whack the moles, we should not be feeding those deadly creatures. And yet that's exactly what we're doing with the proliferation of marijuana. I have not met a single person who overdosed or uses fentanyl that did not start by priming their brain with marijuana. We cannot be serious about preventing drug addiction and fentanyl if we don't talk about marijuana. And we also cannot ignore the trifecta of homelessness, mental health, and substance use. Visiting parts of America now feels like a third world. But with the doom and gloom, there's hope. My high truth hopes is for a united front. There are so many people in this country who have true passion on the issue of drugs. It's so rewarding and inspiring to work and interact with you. We can all agree that we want less people to die and less people and families to suffer from substance use disorder. My hopes is that drugs get the status of infectious diseases, that fentanyl overdoses gets as just as much attention as COVID. The other day, I and my colleagues received an alert from the local health department. There were six cases, six of Shigella diarrhea diagnosed in the homeless. Emergency physicians and hospital physicians were asked to obtain specific stool cultures, give direction on what antibiotics to prescribe, and make arrangements for the homeless to go to the Diarrhea Shigella Hotel, where the infection can be contained. Wow, that's impressive public health awareness, intervention, and response, and for just six cases. But for the greater good, it prevented many more cases. That's why I'm jealous of diarrhea. We created COVID hotels, now Shigella hotels. I want sobriety hotels. We need a safe place for people who want to get off drugs to help them with their brain disease that pulls them to inject or smoke when they really want to break free of those shackles. We don't have a safe, sober place to send all the patients we have from the emergency department who want such an environment. Finding a sober and drug-free environment is not easy, not as easy as a COVID or Shigella hotel. So yeah, I'm jealous of diarrhea. I suffer from severe FOMO, fear of missing out. I can't help it. I see something good that's successful and works, and I want it for addiction. Why does hepatitis get more attention than methamphetamine? I think we can develop a system applicable to drugs that follows the infectious disease model. So here are my six infectious disease principles that give me FOMO for drugs. Principle number one, mapping. 
We have mapping for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. I know what zip code has more COVID cases than other zip codes, and we need this for drugs. Addiction should not be more politically sensitive than sexually transmitted diseases. Some counties and states use a tool called ODMAP for drug overdose mapping. It is HIPAA privacy compliant and makes a difference. If we knew a zip code had more overdoses, we would deploy more health resources and intervention to that part of town. Drug mapping is my FOMO number one. Principle number two is treatment. There is a consensus standard for treating infections such as pneumonia and urinary tract infections. Each year, as the bacterial resistance changes, the antibiotic recommendations change as well. Standard treatment is in the works for opiate use disorder, but not to the level of infections. For example, buprenorphine dosing for fentanyl addiction needs adjustment compared to heroin addiction. Any doctor is allowed to treat skin infections or meningitis. Not every doctor is allowed to treat opiate use disorder without registering to the government first. Equal treatment for addiction is my FOMO number two. Principle number three is contact tracing and partner treatment. I do not need to establish a doctor-patient relationship to write a prescription to a partner of someone who I treat with a sexually transmitted disease, an STD. We encourage treatment of possible infected partners. We need the same with addiction. Most providers know about giving antibiotics to STD partners. Naloxone should be freely prescribed to family and friends. STDs and COVID also get contact tracing. If someone has a disease, we trace for others who may be needing treatment as well. Well, for every overdose on fentanyl, there are several other friends who are at risk. An overdose is a teachable moment and a motivation to change. Contact tracing after an overdose can save more lives. Contact tracing for overdoses and family prescriptions for naloxone is my FOMO number three. Principle number four is getting to the root of the problem with environmental prevention. The root of malaria disease was the swamps. Getting rid of the swamps got rid of malaria. The root of cholera was infected water supply. Getting the water clean got rid of cholera. The root supply of drugs is what's entering our borders. With less supply, we would have less use and less deaths. Listen to my discussion with the author of Dreamland and the least of us, Sam Quinones, on how supply matters. Our partners in public safety have a critical role. They are draining the swamp and cleaning up the water supply. They are our partners in public health. No one was protesting against those draining the malaria-infected swamps, and we should be supporting law enforcement efforts in eradicating drugs as we supported the eradication of infectious disease. Removing the supply of drugs is my FOMO number four. Principle number five is emergent safe shelter for infected people. We provided a Shigella hotel for those infected with this diarrheal illness. There was a safe place for people with Shigella to heal and prevent the spread of infection. And we need to invest more in safe places for people who want to get sober and drug-free. There's a lot of discussion about safe consumption sites that is brick and mortar places with a nurse or health aide ready to administer naloxone as people are allowed to use drugs in a supervised setting. 
we already have these locations. They're called the homeless encampments and tents. Unfortunately, drug use is prevalent in these areas and perhaps they need more naloxone access. However, try to find a place free of drugs for people to get sober. While there are many great treatment programs around our country, they are simply not available in real time to people who need them acutely from the emergency department. We have COVID hotels, Shigella hotels. We do not have a drug-free hotel or locations that's easily accessed. Increasing emergent sobering and treatment locations is my FOMO number five. Principle number six and my final principle and perhaps the most important one of my jealousy of infectious disease and how we should apply infectious disease principles to drug overdoses has to do with the principle of the vaccine. COVID is a perfect example. The path to ending or controlling COVID is a vaccine. Treatment is important, but the vaccine will decrease the spread in the community. While I started my career as a doctor, babies would get epiglottitis, a life-threatening infection of the windpipe due to haemophilus influenza. We now have a vaccine for H influenza, and we just don't have so many kids with epiglottitis anymore. And by the way, no one protested that vaccine. What's the vaccine for addiction? The vaccine for addiction is prevention. If we protected the growing brain until age 25, 27, from exposure to any type of drugs that could be addicting, from tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, and all drugs, we would have less addiction in our country. It is not inevitable that kids use drugs. Rats in a cage do not prefer drugs over food. For those who claim that kids will use drugs, like they will have sex, that's not true. There's no biological drive to use drugs. There is a biological drive to have sex. Of course, there is a genetic disposition for alcohol and drugs, and there is social acceptance of drugs in some circles, but that can be mitigated. The vaccine model has been successfully applied to tobacco cessation with preventing use in youth, increased price of tobacco and smoke-free areas. We need the vaccine model for drug prevention in youth. And we can't pretend to care about opioid addiction and prevention without acknowledging that most people who are using fentanyl started by priming their brain with marijuana. We simply need to invest more in drug prevention. Increased prevention in our youth is my FOMO number six. For those of us working in drug prevention, addiction treatment, public health, public safety, and drug policy, we have a busy year and an important year ahead of us. I would like to see more collaboration, communication, and breaking of silos. We all have the common goal of prevention, connecting people to treatment, and saving lives. To the parents and family members who are active in the fight on drug abuse, don't forget that your efforts at home and your community make a huge difference. Your voice matters and is strong. Your story is compelling and relatable. I encourage you to continue writing, emailing, going to meetings, making phone calls, and being strong activists. You inspire me and drive me to do what I do. And I really thank you for all your advocacy, your passion. You are my heroes. And I hope that I can support you 
with High Truths. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. Learn more about CCR at ccrconsulting.org. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.